Well, hey there. Thank you so much for listening to our Big Time Talker podcast. I'm Burke Allen. We drop new episodes every Tuesday from our palatial studios here in the nation's capital, Washington, D.C., where the sun is shining, the birds are singing, and most of the politicians have bailed out for the summer. So it's even better. <laughs> Are you saying the city's a much nicer place now? I am exactly saying that. There's a, a uh, shortage of hot air in town now, even oh. though. Well, I, I'm glad to be with the big time talker to fill up some of that hot air. You know, you can't let it all go at once. And I'm happy to have you. Our guest this week is Darby Hinton, actor and man about town. You've seen him on TV for many a moon and, uh, we're going to talk about that background after we say thank you to speakermatch.com. They're the ones who make this entire shebang possible. Our show sponsor is the world's largest online virtual speakers bureau. So if you're a meeting planner or maybe you're a platform speaker, maybe that's what you do, then you can find one another at speakermatch.com. And when you do download these new episodes, wherever you get them at iHeartMedia, uh, whether it's on your smart device with Alexa or uh, Apple iTunes. If you like what you hear, tell a friend. And if you don't like what you hear, tell a friend that you liked what you heard on the Big Time Talker podcast. All right. Darby Hinton. He grows up in a show business family. He gets his first on-camera gig before he's even out of diapers. And now at this point, he may be back in diapers. I don't know. We'll get into that. Uh, but you may. All right, that's it. I'm out of here. Goodbye. <laughs> See you later. Uh, is his very first on air gig. You were on uh, a show called Playhouse 90. Is that right? Yeah, I was. Um, which was a live show back then. Yes. Uh, now you're going to remember him. Uh, if you're a soap opera fan, perhaps from his, his day in the days in the soaps. But if, if you are a uh, child of the 60s, you're totally going to remember uh, him from uh, hanging out with Fess Parker on Daniel Boone. Um, you get a job as a, a baby, an infant on Playhouse 90. Is that because uh, I read you grew up in a showbiz family. Is that how that happened? Or how does it happen? You know, you don't go to baby <laughs> auditions, right? The babies are, are not schlepping into the agent's office. So how do you get a gig as a baby? How does that work? Well, actually, in this town, yeah, babies do get schlepped in. But how, well, actually, now everything's via Zoom. About video, yeah. Um, well, I had, my dad was an actor. Um, right. And, I mean, it's a very Hollywood family I came up in. You know, Charlton Heston's my godfather. Jane Russell's my sister's godmother. Uh, Tyrone Power, Errol Flynn, and my dad were the three amigos running around town. And they all died within a year of each other, too, at a young age. Anyway, my two older sisters started young, not as young as I did, but they were young actresses. And when I came about, you know, they would ask my dad, well, you know, what about your son? Are you going to put him in the business? And his favorite response was, I don't know. The kid's a bum. He's two months old. Hasn't earned a dime. You know? <laughs> <laughs> He's three months, four months old. Hasn't earned a dime. Well, this joke drove my mom crazy. So she managed to get me on Playhouse 90, didn't tell him about it, you know, made him sit there and watch it when it aired. And uh, he he watched the whole thing. And I was six months old when I first came out. And when I first came out, there you go. First came out. <laughs> yeah, six so that's months. what I they was, call it. That's I wasn't sure what to do back then, yes. <laughs> um, but... He watched it and then he just turned and looked at her and was like, Marilyn, you sure know how to ruin a good joke. <laughs> <laughs> so that's that's how I started. And then unfortunately, he was killed in a plane crash. Um, coming back to do a movie, actually, from Catalina back to uh, 20th Century Fox when I was a year old. Mm. And then my mom all of a sudden found herself, you know, a widow with two daughters and, a, and, my, and me. And she kind of thought the business would be a good place where I'd get a lot of good male influence and and help growing up and stuff. So she kept me in the business. Did that play out well, you think? Oh, well, I'm a happy camper. I don't know if people around me are, but I'm I'm a happy guy. Well, so as a kid, and I'm kind of going through the resume stuff here, you were on Ozzy and Harriet and Wagon Train. You did Mr. Ed. You did Route 66. 
you know, we hear all these cautionary tales about kids who start their acting career at a young age. And I'm wondering if, and this is, you know, in the rearview mirror, most of us can't even remember our childhoods like that. But do you remember there being sort of pressures and expectations that came with being a child actor? Or what are your your actual recollections that are not necessarily from the screen, but the, the rest of it that goes around it? Well, I had a lot of fun doing it. I mean, it was it was great getting to play all these things, you know, wagon train riding with the on the horses next to the wagons. And so, you know, I do a lot of work for child actors now because unfortunately, you're right. Uh, I lost a number of very good friends growing up that uh, just somehow couldn't take it and exited way prematurely. Yeah. And so, you know, through Paul Peterson, who is the patron saint of child actors, um, you know, he started a, a group called A Minor Consideration. Right. And uh, boy, he contacted me and found me a ton of money. But that's a whole other story. Um, and then also now I'm with Looking Ahead, which is through the entertainment community, where we we do a whole little community for child actors. And it's called Looking Ahead because it's, yeah, you're having a great time in the business now. But what happens when this series ends? You know, what else would you like to do? So we do everything from taking them paintballing and bowling to the motion picture home to talk to other old actors to the makeup and, you know, lighting and grips and even the financial world, just so they can kind of have a fallback um, if it doesn't go well, because it isn't easy to transition from a child actor to a, (laughs) dare I say the word adult. (laughs) So it seems to be, and look, this is not my end of the snake, but it seems to me looking at at child actors um, as opposed to uh, adult actors, it's a different skill set. And and you did it, so correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like, Darby, for for a kid actor, it's, you know, you kind of say your lines and you hit the mark and you be cute and funny, but there's a whole different complexion as an adult actor. Is that why so many kids have a tough time transitioning uh, into uh, adult work and you did it. So why, well, why is that hard? Well, no, I mean, the skill set still has to be the same when you're an adult, you have to immerse yourself into the character and, you know, do it with a full believing and full heart. And if you see kids playing on the playground, I mean, you know, listen, I have four boys and a little girly, but you know, my boys, they're going to play, they pick up a stick and it is a rifle. It is a bazooka. They, you know, they commit and they do it wholeheartedly and they're allowed to do it because they're kids. The older you get, the more people want to tell you what's appropriate and what isn't appropriate and how you should act and shouldn't act. And, and so that's where it becomes more guarded. And then people start indicating instead of really, really being immersed into the character uh, is what I believe. And also a lot of it depends on the parenting and how they're brought up and who the leads are on the set. Cause that's usually how the sets run is, you know, whoever the lead actors are kind of take their cue. Everybody else takes their cue from them. Right. But the ones that I see had the most trouble growing up, well, the ones that didn't really want to do it, their parents wanted them to do it. And they got kind of pushed into it. And then they got a whole financial thing kind of happens and stuff. And, you know, that that's kind of the shame. Because I was always asked, you know, how do I get my kid in the business? I really like you. And I'm all, it's a very tough business. And it can be ruthless. Sure. So, it's not how can I get in, it's how how can I prevent my child who wants to do this so much from being in the business? And then that child has a shot at it. But if you know, you just kind of haphazard or or you know, you keep pushing your kid to do it, and then they happen to get a series or something, which is great and it runs, but then it ends, then, then that's a lot. Well, that's a lot of times where the, the trouble happens too. Cause when when you're a success on a series, everybody wants to be your friend. You know, you go to parades and you do uh, children events and, 
you know, every and you know, you pull up to the studio gate and it raises before you even wave at the guard and stuff. The minute the series is over, all of a sudden, a lot of those people stop calling. And, you know, you pull up to the studio gate and it's, why are you here? And it's, it's a whole different thing. And I kind of look at it that fame is a very addictive drug. It's, it's a lot of fun. And like I say, even some power comes with it. But the difference is when you lose it, you, you can't go out and, you know, try to buy it. You can't go to the street corner. I, I need a fix of fame again. Yeah. So a lot of, unfortunately, child actors and older actors do things that get them a lot of attention that might not be the best things. And that's where a lot of the trouble, I think, comes to. Were you raised in a single mom household? Because you talked about the reason I asked, you talked about how important it is for for these kid actors, child actors to have a good stable home life and to have good parenting to keep them from going off the rails. And you, you also mentioned you had a couple of uh, siblings. I think you said they were sisters who were actresses. So were you raised by a single mom or how did that all play out? I was raised by a single mom, a wonderful mom, you know, just great, terrible businesswoman, but a wonderful mom. And, you know, if you want to think of these coincidence, coincidence, uh, or, you know, that people are looking out for us. Yeah, my dad was killed. You know, I, I walked into the wrong office and got the role as, <clears throat> excuse me, and got the role. Actually, I didn't get the role of Israel Boone. I got the role of Nathan Boone. And then in during the pilot, they switched it around and got rid of the person that was playing Israel and moved me to Israel. Whole other long story. But I walked into that wrong office, met Fess, who is such a wonderful person. I mean, people always ask me, what was Fess like? Yeah. Who's like the character he portrayed? You know, that that was him. All he was like, Fess Parker was Daniel Boone. All American. I mean, here he was, the huge businessman and, you know, big landowner in Santa Barbara. And, you know, he went in a pine box with his boots on. Um he, I, I can't say enough good things about Fess. And I got him as a father for six years and as a friend for another four or five decades. Yeah. Um, and that show aired on my mother's birthday. So I kind of think it all came together. And, and when you asked, I have good parenting. Yes. And Ed Ames, who unfortunately just passed. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I had him. I had Rosie Greer. What, uh, you know, Rosie's still a very dear friend. And when he came on the show, just like a year, maybe a year and a half after he tackled Sirhan Sirhan, you know, right. the ambassador after shooting Bobby Kennedy. And here is this, you know, 300 pound, fearsome, foursome, huge man. And he's telling me the story and tears are coming down. I'm like, oh, so you can be big and imposing and let your feelings out like that. I mean, and there were just so many people on the set and everything else. So I, I had a great upbringing. I love it. Raised uh, as most of us were in that era. It, it takes a village to raise a child. Yours just happened to be largely on a, a soundstage. Um, in front of a camera, which is fun now because I get a lot of home movies. That's right. There's lots <laughs> of little do- Israel running around all over the place. Um, I'm doing I'm doing a tribute tonight to Ed Ames, and we're going to show one of the earliest episodes of Israel and Mingo together. And, you know, it'll be fun because I haven't seen this, uh, you know, so to look back on those and stuff, it, it's a lot of fun. You know, if you want to keep up with what Darby's uh, up to, and he's a busy guy, visit him at DarbyHinton.com, DarbyHinton.com. Um, uh, I, I tried stuff. to make that really easy for my friends from the seventies. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't matter how much smoke is in front of you. It's darbyhinton.com. Um, <laughs> when, uh, when you see, and, and maybe you haven't seen some of this stuff in years, you see the, the early stuff, even before Daniel Boone, you see the Mr. Ed's or the, the wagon trains or the Ozzie and Harriet's. Do you have um, actual 
memories of doing these things or is it only what you see on the camera and and i'll give you the analogy i came up in in the radio business and and at least twice a year someone online in social media will send me an air check of me you know saying something being on the radio goofing around in 1984 and i'll go wow i i know that's my voice and i hear the words coming out i have no recollection of saying those things is it a similar thing for you as as somebody who has a career that spanned this long, or do you have actual maybe enhanced memories of being a wee little kid and doing these things? You know, it's funny. There, there are things I, I don't remember just like you. I'm like, mm-hmm. actually, that just came up. Oh, I got a residual check for, for a TV show. I'm like, I did that show. I couldn't even remember doing that show. Right. I was like, and then there's sometimes when we go back and do these Boone, you know, viewing parties, and somebody will say a line, and I'll remember what my next line was. Um, so it, it's really funny. Huh. The memory thing is really funny. The movie I just got through filming um, is actually about that. So I've really been looking into the old Alzheimer's and dementia thing and stuff. So, um, but yeah, some of the memories, like Mr. Ed, you mentioned, you know, right. I think it was four when I did that or something. And I remember it because I loved watching Mr. Ed on TV. So to actually go on the set, a little bit of a bummer to see how they made him talk. (laughs) You know, to go, and it was was kind of funny when it happened because the scene was I was supposed to kick Wilbur. And I'm like, I don't want to kick Wilbur. I like Wilbur. (laughs) So in makeup, they had the prop guy come in and show me the metal shin guard that he was going to have strapped to his ankle. And, you know, because back then kids weren't wearing sneakers. They were, you know, wood sold shoes. Right. And, you know, they show me, oh, look, it's, you know, it's very tough. He won't feel the thing. Don't worry about it. So I'm like, oh, okay. And then we did the rehearsal. I said my line, hauled off and kicked Wilbur as hard as I could because I wanted to make a good impression and show him how strong I was. And he didn't have the shin guard on for rehearsal. <laughs> so oh, all of a sudden man. now, Wilbur is hopping around. Oh, my God, you son of a... You know? <laughs> and I'm like, what, what, what? I, and I felt so bad. And then, of course, comes time to film it. They're like, okay, kick Wilbur. I don't want kick Wilbur. <laughs> So, childhood trauma from the whole Mr. Ed thing. Oh, I, I remember days like that. Yes. And, and actually, that's funny because we you just talk about people bringing back things that you've never seen before. Right. Somebody, I think it was through Facebook, um, showed a movie, a clip that my sister was in with my dad. I think it was Apache Trail or something. It was anyway, it was one of the old Westerns. And my sister said to me, because she got out when she was about 12 or so. She just didn't like people telling her what to do. But she said, no wonder I got out. Look at this. And she was a baby in arms. The fort's being attacked by Indians. The mom runs across, trips and falls. And you see Darren, you know, fall out of her arms and roll. And then (laughs) when they get into the cabin, you know, her real dad is there because my dad was one of the stars of it. And, you know, he's shooting through the window and then from behind an Indian comes in and shoots him with an arrow and she's sitting there. She goes, not only do I fall and get trampled, but I sit there and watch my father die in front of me. So she had some bad memories that she and that's why she got out. There's a uh, there's a story uh, that I ran across online about you and the way you got this Daniel Boone job. And you you talked about it a little bit, but I want to see if this is accurate. So. As the story goes on the internet, and if it's on the internet, Darby, it has to be true. It has um, to be, even if I tell you different, you know, believe it has to be true. Yeah. There's, there's, there is no hocus pocus on the internet. It says you're six years old. Your mom uh, left you uh, at 20th Century Fox for a minute while she went to go park the car. And you were there to audition to be one of the, the Von Trapp kids in The Sound of Music. She leaves to go park the car. You're six. You get in the wrong line, the wrong office. You wind up in the Daniel Boone office, and the casting department yeah, says, "Oh, yeah, you, we can you know, like you. You're pretty good." So, is that is that <laughs> even remotely what happened? You know, that wasn't bad. First of all, I was only five. Okay, uh, I was six by the time the show aired, but I was five when when we were shooting the beginning. And yeah, she she got me up 
and say, come on, we got to get to Fox and, and put me in a later hosen and knee high socks <laughs> and had me sing an Edelweiss and Doe a Deer all the way to the studio. And like I said, my mom was a great mom, but businesswoman and late. She was always late to everything, even her own funeral. And, you know, we got in, in on the lot and she you know, opened up the door in front of the casting building, which is a you know three story building and stuff. And said, here, you run in. They're waiting for you. I'll go park the car and, and I'll see you inside. I'm like, okay. So I ran into the building. I saw a line of kids. I got in the line of kids. And the secretary poked her head out from around the line and looked at me in my later hosen. <laughs> I come here. And I'm like, oh, I went up to her. And she goes, what's your name? Darby Hinton. She goes, yeah, yeah. Just wait here one minute. And as soon as the next kid came out of the office, she took me in. I'm sure as a complete joke to everybody that was in there because it was filled, you know, big desks, the heads of all this, the big tall people. And she brought me in and, uh, you know, the big guy kind of calmed everybody down. Yes, yes. You know, who are you? I'm Darby. Oh, and I had just done a wagon train. <laughs> and in the middle of wagon train, I lost my front tooth. So the studio had to get me a flapper which is a false tooth that goes in so that, you know, they could match what I had shot before. And I just looked at him and said, you know what? If you hire me, you can have me this way. Or I ducked under the table, pulled the flapper out, or you can hire me this way. <laughs> and I, They loved it. They cracked up. I left the office. I went out into the hall. There's my mom running up and down the hall. And she sees me and she's like, there you are. Where have you been? They've been waiting for you upstairs. Come on. I can't believe it. I'm like, uh, I don't know, mom, but, Whatever's in there, I just got it. <laughs> and that was Daniel Boone. And like I say, they were, it was all the callback castings for Israel Boone, who they hired a boy to be. Right. And Bess had him write a part in for me as another son. And they called it Nathan Boone. And that's why in the early comic books and a couple of the early press releases, and even in the pilot in the beginning, you see Fess with two boys. Um, but Oh, boy, I could go on with these stories. But then in the middle, they had me putting out flaming arrows and George Marshall, who's a wonderful director, you know, added scenes for me. And they decided, well, why do we need the older brother? And that was it. That's how I became Israel. How long did that show run? What were Six the years. years. And you were there the whole time, right? I was there the whole time. I, all, um, the way up, all the way until Israel fell in love. And then that was it. That was the last show. Yeah, <laughs> it, uh, you know, you, you see the show now and obviously it's uh, sort of a product of, of a more innocent time. And yet you were doing that show um, the last couple of years when when America was in a lot of turmoil. I mean, you talked about Rosie Greer and, and he's there at, at, at Bobby Kennedy's assassination. You got that going on and you have people going off to Vietnam and you have the the hippie movement and protests and you know all this racial unrest and, and yet here's Daniel Boone on TV and I wonder were you as a young guy were you aware of what's happening in the outside world and that that where you are is very much divorced from what's going on outside oh absolutely absolutely that's one of the nice things about the big gates at the studio you get in there and it's a protective environment but Yes, of course, we knew what was going on. And that was kind of the demise of Daniel Boone. I mean, here you have the great, you know, frontiersman, uh, Indian fighter. And once Martin Luther King was shot, the studio is like, no, nope, no more guns, no more pointing, you know, at anybody. I think the final season, Daniel's gun went off twice, once by accident, once at a turkey shoot. Um, you know, and there were no more heathen redskins. You know, they were right. now our friends. And, and you know, it kind of just turned into a family affair um which my friend Kathy Garber was on and did well and and so that was kind of the end of the show but you know I I look back at all times and there was always something going on um you know I have kids right now that are, are very afraid one of my boys he's like you know this AI stuff's the end of the world yeah and I'm like yeah but you know we had the Cuban Missile Crisis we had the Cold War we had the killer bees we had the hole in the ozone. Like you said, you know, uh, people are talking about the, the racial disparity now and stuff. And obviously there's stuff that still needs to take place. 
but you compare it to just a generation ago or two. Things I are mean, much they, better now. Yeah. Oh my goodness, absolutely. And and so I say, you know, you have to just hope that there is a big guy up there looking out for us and and keep doing what you can to make the world a little bit better. And we'll all get through this. So you said, uh, if I got it right, Darby, you were five whenever you did the audition. The show started when you were six. So you were on that show during some pretty formative years, but it all came to an end when you're you know, a young teenager. Yes, the, um, Wonder, the Wonder Bread years, six through 12. Remember that commercial? The Wonder Bread years. Wow, that's a nice retro uh, name check. There you go. There you go. Um, and, and, you know, the, the, we think now about all of these shows like Daniel Boone and you mentioned, uh, you know, Family Affair and, and Gilligan's Island and Batman and, and all of those, Andy Griffith show, all those classic TV shows. You come out of that, though, and it's 1970 and and the growth spurt happens. And, and what happens in, in Darby Hinton's world when you're not hanging out going hunting with Fess Parker anymore? <laughs> well, I tried to do things to kind of break that all-American image. Um, you know, I played a drug pusher on Hawaii Five-0, uh, on the bold ones. I played a drug addict. Um, you know, so I, I tried to go off and do other projects that, that kind of dispersed that a little bit. And then by the time I got out and being kicked back into a regular school was not that great of an experience. So when I finally, it was time to go off to high school, I thought, well, I'm going to go someplace where nobody knows who I am. Cause even when I travel to foreign countries and stuff, you know, people kind of knew me. Right. So I'm like, I'm going to go up to school in the, in the Swiss Alps. There's a little Americans going, I'll be fine. And I did 20 hours of planes, trains, and automobiles to get there, got to the big gate of the school, got to the back of the taxi, got my suitcase out. And before it hit the ground, this girl walking by looked at me and went, Daniel Boone was a man. <laughs> and you're 7,000 miles away from home and oh, yeah. still follows you there. Yeah. So, you know, at that point, I just had to live and, and accept the fact that Israel was known around the world and loved by a lot of people. Like you say, when I get to do these, uh, you know, these festivals and stuff, that's what a lot of people say, how much they enjoyed the show because they could watch it with their whole family and then talk about it. And, you know, there were values back then, and you kind of knew who the good guy was and the bad guy. And and so, you know, it's it was fun to be a part of. It was a fun era. But to go back to what you said, there was always something going on that if you wanted to focus on how it could destroy the world. My godfather, you know, shot, what was it, Sullivan Green. We were supposed to be eating each other now because of overpopulation. So I know there's a lots of scary things out there, but I just try to, to look at the positive and give more energy towards that. One of the reasons I like doing your show is I heard you're the director of fun. That's correct. That is, that is on my business card and I'm all about it. I like to just tell people, everyone just calm down, <laughs> just calm down. It's going to be fine. Um, you Touch on something, and, and look, I'm not going to pile on your mom here, but you, you mentioned that you came into a lot of money later on uh, through Paul Peterson's help, and that your mom was a terrible business person. So am I to assume that something didn't go proper in the kid accounting department uh, coming out of <laughs> Daniel Boone, uh, that, that at some point you got somewhat rectified? Tell me about that. Um, well, yes, mom decided once the series was over that, well, he's not working. And so she, thought, well, you know, she didn't really file taxes. Um, sorry. And <laughs> no, it, just, just didn't bother. I'm just not going to do that. She didn't like lawyers and doctors or any of that legal stuff. You know, uh -huh. she was a mom. I see. Um, and, uh, believe it or not, the IRS noticed and, and Shocker. I, uh, yeah, and it wasn't until I was over 18 and doing a movie and the producer called me in in the middle of filming and said, Darby, come in. I said, what? I felt like I was in the principal's office. He's like, Darby, I, I was just visited by G-men. I had to figure out what G-men meant. 
Uh-huh. He goes, I'm not allowed to pay you. I got to pay the government directly. Oh, excuse me. What? <laughs> what was that? And that's the first time I found out about it, looked into it. Um, once my mom passed, she made me executor. So I found all the old papers that she stuck between Hollywood reporters and, you know, other things and filed away like that. Um, but yeah, the, the government said, hey, look, because they just kept assuming I was making as much money as I did the last year of the show right? for umpteen years. So they wrote a letter. Look, we know you don't owe us as much money, but since you haven't, you know, contacted us, we're just taking anything and everything with Darby's name on it. So, oh, yeah, they they kind of wiped out everything. Um, so, so they went and, and not only garnished your wages, but grabbed what you still had in the bank from all that work. Oh, anything. Yeah, anything and everything that had Darby Hinton on it, they grabbed. Um, and then, like I said, I was over 18. I, I went and tried to talk to people and everything. And you know, even got to talk to a congressman. He goes, no, you're past the statute of limitations. It would take an act of Congress to get that money back for you. So I'm like, okay, thanks. So, you know, move on. Well, I guess I just got to make it all again. And there were some rough times. And that's when... Um, I guess you're talking about when Paul Peterson called me. Yeah. And it was actually doing a very rough time. Um, we talk about coincidence, coincidence. The, the night before, was it that night? I think it was that night even. It was raining in L.A. back when it used to rain in L.A. And um, I was sitting there. I had a you know new family, kids. I didn't know how things were going to happen. And... I was sitting there having a kind of a heated conversation with the man upstairs at a red light. And all of a sudden somebody hit me from behind. And I was like, really, really? That's how you want me to get money to sue people for an accident. I, now I really got into a heated conversation. And then the <laughs> lady comes up and knocks on my window. She's like, are you all right? And I'm like, yeah, just, I'm fine. Go away. Go. And she, what, are, are you sure? I said, yes, just please go away. So she went away. I get a call from Paul Peterson, either that night or the next night. I, it's a little fuzzy now, but hi, Darby, this is Paul. I know, you know, you know, we haven't really met in person or anything, but I think I found you some money. Can I call you tomorrow? And I sure hung up the phone, looked at my wife and goes, oh, what does he want? What, you know, what scam, well, what project scam is this going on? <laughs> and uh, he called me. He said, meet me downtown at this, you know, the, and he gave me a judge's name. And I'll see you down there. And I said, okay. I went downtown. I go into the courthouse. I, I go look at the courtroom. And the bailiff was like, oh, no, no, come with me. And he took me back into the to the judge's chambers, which I thought was very cool right then and there. Sure. And I talked to the judge and, and we're all, you know, reminiscing and stuff. And finally he goes, so where are you parked? And I said, oh, right. I pointed out the window across the street in the parking lot. He goes, oh, and he got on the phone and got an armed guard to come stand by me. I'm like, oh, this is getting interesting. Mm-hmm. And then after we said those pleasantries, we went down into the basement of City Hall, into the vault. And they brought out a couple of few boxes of treasury bills that had been put away for me by through the, John, through the Coogan Law, um, which is... At the time, we've expanded it now, especially with Paul's help, to encompass more actors, uh, child actors and stuff. But back then, if you were on a series, there was a percentage of money that they had to put away just for the child actor. Nice. And it went into these vaults, but the city couldn't, was supposed to be totally neutral. So they couldn't reach out and tell anybody, hey, we have this money for you. And I guess since it was so secret, the IRS missed it. But Paul Peterson, God bless him, went in there and started looking for child actors, all this money that was being held. And I turned out to be one, I think, the largest recipient of that money because they were beautiful treasury bills that kept earning interest all through the 70s and 80s when we had that double digit interest. So, yeah, so things worked out pretty nice there. How, um, how tight was money? before this happened for you was there a time when did i mention i was did i I mention i was having a heated conversation with the man upstairs 
<laughs> were you fishing for change? Cause I've been there, you know, you're fishing for change in, in, in every cup holder you can find hoping that, uh, you know, you can get enough for a bologna sandwich. I mean, was it, was it really, really tight? Well, it wasn't a bologna sandwich, but it was, you know, I, I had what at the time I got five kids at the time. I think I had four kids and a house and a mortgage and a, a new wife. And, uh, I ate bologna. <laughs> <laughs> I gotcha. Uh, and so Paul Peterson said, I'm happy to help you with this and I'll, I'll take my 15% and see you later. Um, and, and he didn't take a dime, but that, that was right? the first time I got interested in, you know, the, like the ex child secret star society and helping kid actors. Cause before I didn't want to ever do, where are they now? And right. the nostalgia thing, because I was currently acting and, you know, kept wanting to go in that direction. But, you know, when I did stop and take a look at the, you know, wonderful people around the kids that I grew up with on the different series that just weren't there anymore. I mean, you remember Ghost and Mrs. Muir uh, sure. with Kelly Flanagan, who I was fortunate enough to get to date a couple of times. And my mom loved Edward Mulher. But, you know, the young boy on that went back, I think it was late 20s, early 30s or something. But, you know, he went back to a school, took his belt off on his school fence and hung himself with a note in his pocket saying, what happened? Everybody used to love me. Everybody used to want to, you know, be around me. Now nobody's here. And uh, it was at that point I went, all right, maybe we can do something to try to help before it gets that bad, before it happens, which is my looking ahead. Paul Peterson is so great at helping them, you know, once they do get in trouble and, you know, going to Congress and going to different changing laws. So that's why it's a happy balance between these two organizations. I do organizations. You, uh, you talked about uh, Ed Ames who just passed here and do this viewing party and, uh, you know, Ed Ames, uh, for folks who are into music like I am, you know, one of the Ames brothers, I mean, this this famous singing guy, he was, uh, Ed Ames must have been in his 90s when he passed, right? I believe I saw somebody who was like 95. What yeah. a great long life in show business. How How is it that Ed Ames um, become, and you may not know this, you were a kid actor when this happened, but how did he get cast to play Mingo? Um do you have any he, idea how that works? He had done a couple of acting things. Um, obviously, I wasn't involved with the casting, but he and he had played an Indian in one other in one other show, I believe. And no, you know, and the wonderful Al Sami, who's going to be in the uh, the show tonight that we we show. Um, no, I, you know, that's the other thing you talk about. Do you remember? There's a lot of times I'll catch one of these old Daniel Boones and go, oh, wait a minute. Right. The witch dad, I'm witched husband was my school teacher or, oh, that's Rayford Johnson. Oh, that's, and, and, you know, at the time I didn't really get to appreciate who I was getting to act and play with. The, uh, you know, I don't remember him at Ames on the show as much is I remember because Carson played this clip over and over again, the thing where we were at Ames and that you know what I'm talking about, right? Throwing the oh, it's on the, the long. I know. I love it when people say, "Did you ever see?" Yes, I have seen it. Um, but yes, it it still holds the record of the longest live studio audience laughter. So this is something you got to Google if you don't know what Darby and I are talking about when uh, when Ed Ames. As Mingo, you know, it, they bring him on to sh to throw a tomahawk and and uh, on the Carson show. And Carson played that clip over and over again, and it's on all the blooper reels. So take a look at that. Yeah, it, um, I think I think it was the last clip Johnny Pay played for his last show because it was his <laughs> most requested clip, and and that's why I laugh when people say, "Did you see?" I mean, what you kind get of away from it? Well, what kind of ribbing do you think Ed got when he came back to the set the next day? <laughs> you know, well, and it's and it's funny. I, I saw Ed oh, a few years ago, and I went up to his house and we talked about it. And you know, he was famous for his whip on Daniel Boone, 
Yep. And and I mentioned that because I have a great picture of him showing me the whip. And he said, yeah, I had that hanging in my garage. He said, but somebody walked off with it. It, it just kind of disappeared. And I was like, yeah, but if you had that tomahawk from the Tonight Show, we could retire. <laughs> that would be the thing. Darby Hinton is our guest today. You remember him as Israel Boone on uh, Daniel Boone. But you went on to work, though, you know, quite a bit and still work. And you've kind of become this this Western guy. Um, do you, when you look at the roles that are offered, do you think that that's because there are maybe a lot of younger casting directors who, who, you know, still see you in that way or because of Daniel Boone when you were a kid, or is it something that you've gone a long way to, to try to, to put yourself into those roles? And, and to be clear, you've done lots of other things too. Um, but yes, you I are just... a Western guy. 40 years later, I did a, uh, one of the new Magnums. <laughs> I thought that was interesting to have done cool. both of those old episodes. Um, you know, they they kind of accept me in the Western world because of Daniel Boone. Even though I didn't wear, you know, the typical cowboy hat, it's still kind of a Western. And, you know, I, I love the Western with the Roy Rogers code of conduct and the Gene Autry's cowboy code and... And I kind of, I don't know. I, I, I like cowboys and I certainly like cowgirls. What could I say? <laughs> so and it all I, comes together. And I, I did, like I said, I didn't used to like to doing the Where They Now or any of these conventions or autograph shows, but I did one that was kind of local um, just because I can't remember who asked me to do it, but kind of as a favor. But, oh, no, I'm sorry. It was in Asheville where my son lives. So it was a great excuse to go out there. And... I met up with a guy, Dan Haggerty, who oh, yeah. I had I had worked with in the 70s on a little thing called When the West Was Fun, but we didn't really interact at all or know anything. But at that convention, we had so much fun together that he just became the big brother I always wanted. And then we started traveling and doing these shows together. And, and the fun thing was, on these shows, yes, it is wonderful to meet fans and have them come up and tell you how much they you meant to them. And like I say, how much they enjoyed the whole family watching. And and then afterwards, the dinner or just at the bar, I'm like, Dreama, what a wonderful woman she is. You know, it's so great to have that come on. Because I never had a normal school, really. So I never had school reunions or anything. And these are like my school reunions. I get to see people that I worked with that I haven't seen in decades. So that's why it's a lot of fun. That's why I, I enjoy doing these festivals. You did a movie in the late 80s or mid 80s, I guess, uh, that I have not seen, but I was told to ask you, <laughs> who is Cody Abilene? <laughs> Another one that I played as a cowboy, even though he's in a red DeLorean and on his boat. Um, you were the lead in this movie called Malibu Express. And, uh, you know, I I got to tell you, the trailer online, it looks like a piece of cinematic uh, artwork. It's, uh, <laughs> there was a lot of, of beauty in that movie. That, uh, and you were not part of it. I mean, we're, <laughs> you look fine, but there was... Seven kind of even notice you there. Seven playmates, including Playmate of the Year and the very lovely Sybil Banning. How about um, that? Yeah, that's you know, there have been a few times in my career when I just sit back and go, they pay me to do this. Uh, and that was <laughs> one of them. them, right? <laughs> yes. Um, uh, that was a very fun uh movie I did. I didn't quite know. <clears throat> That it was going to turn out the way it did when I got this, a little saucy. When I got the script, it was, you know, like I say, a big cowboy. You know, I got on the set and they gave me this like little 38. And I'm like, no, no, no. He has to have a little big long gun. So, but we had so much fun with the Buffingtons and stuff. And then Andy, the director, Andy Sedaris, um, you know, all of a sudden he'd go, and here's going to be your next lady. And, you know, he would open the centerfold of Playboy. And we always shot two versions. We shot the American version, and then we shot the European version. And, of course, in the European version, he would ask the ladies to take their top off. Mm -hmm. Well, by the end of it, and actually not until the premiere, did I realize that I don't even know if he was rolling film during the American version. <laughs> <laughs> 
So it turned out a lot saucier than I thought it was. And unfortunately, because of that, I didn't go on and do, and, and because of the success of that, Andy got a four picture deal. And the deal was that Cody Abilene was going to, you know, go all these fun places and be that private detective. Um, but I kind of backed out of it. For, uh, and it's so funny because if you watch the one after that he did, which I believe was hard ticket to Hawaii, um, <laughs> there's a picture of me on the wall so that he could tell his investors, oh, yeah, no, Darby's in it. He's, he's in the movie. Don't worry about it. <laughs> Just just ignore that the, our lead character doesn't look anything like him. It's, it's just... oh, and a couple of those Andy Phil's. One of my sons is he loves them. He can't believe I turned down uh, doing those again. <laughs> but I will say it was hard. That uh, that was kind of filmed right after my first uh, marriage, and uh, yeah, that that's an interesting project to work on when you are newly married. Yeah, I imagine that that probably uh, did not go over well at home. I'm just guessing. No, she, listen, she did. There were some challenges between the two of us, but that was actually one of the fun things. When I did the love scene with Sybil, you know, I kind of had approval over, you know, what was going to be shown and what wasn't. So they set up a screening for the dailies for me to come in and I brought my wife and I came in, Andy's mouth just dropped, and the other producer, and they walked in, she found a scene, Andy pulled me aside, goes, Darby, Darby, what are you doing? That, you know, you're, you're, you're in bed with her and doing it. I said, I know, but <laughs> she's going to give me an objective eye and tell me the truth. I want to see, you know, what's, what's good and what isn't. So she watched, and I felt sorry for her, because Andy didn't take her eyes off her the entire screening, oh. and everyone was kind of looking at her for her reaction. And then she's like, thank you. We walked out. We were driving home. And she said, well, Derby, if everybody's going to see you up there making love, I don't want them feeling sorry for me. So you better do it right. (laughs) (laughs) That's about the best thing that you could hope for, I think. under Oh, yeah. No, she was great that way. You you and I talked about uh, your soap opera days. You did a, a pretty long arc on Days of Our Lives, but you you were not a sympathetic character. Was well, I was in the beginning. Yeah. Well, as as these things go in soap operas, um, <laughs> you know, watching the soap opera genre, that looks like from the outside world, as somebody who doesn't do it for a living, like a really tough gig. I mean, you're you're filming every day and you got all kinds of dialogue to do. And then on top of it, you know, they they make you a, a not great guy. What are your recollections of doing Days of Our Lives? That was the roughest that's the closest acting became to work for me um and david hasselhoff was a great friend back when he was doing snapper on the young and the restless i took him over to hawaii his first time and we had a blast and we would walk into bars and every girl from eight to 80 would be like oh snapper and they'd be all over him and none of the guys knew who he was and i went wow that's that's kind of a good gig Yeah, yeah yeah That can work. You can just go be one of the guys, but you know, it helps with the ladies. Um, But that was, like I say, back with that first wife, she was pregnant. I had the ultrasound found out I was going to have a boy. I'm like, Oh my goodness. He's going to want a Porsche. She's going to, I got to be working. I got to be working. (laughs) So that's when I I went and, and tried out for the soap and got it. Um, But yes, it's a lot of work. It's, you know, you can have, 20 pages, 30 sometimes of dialogue a night to know the next day and nonstop. You, uh, you just did this Magnum PI and you, you had done the show back in the eighties. Um, uh, you know, we could go through the whole resume. There's so much. I, I wonder how difficult it is for you to, to sort of keep the passion for doing it because you do everything. I mean, not only acting, I mean, you're producing and you've done directing and, uh, and, and it's, you know, guest shots on TV and independent movies and this whole mishmash of things. So you did a a voiceover for a video game, which is kind of (laughs) cool. Yeah. Um, My kids like that. Is it, is it still fun for you or is it, as you just said, is it, you know, the, the, the most like work you've ever done. Do you, do you, no, 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 that was, that was just a soap. I love the Western. I just did once a hero, 
um, you know, once again, with the six shooter and shooting it up and horses um, and the sod and the, and the one I'm going to go off and do now with wagons and stuff. I, I have a blast doing it. That's why I do it. All right. So if we didn't catch on the new Magnum PI, you do have this Western coming up. Where can we find out about what you're doing next? Well, like you said, they can always go to DarbyHinton.com. I try to keep my calendar pretty uh, up to date there. Um, I'm I'm taking off next week for Mississippi for the Mid-South Nostalgia Festival. That's June 8th through 10th, which is an olive branch. Um, and then after that, there's, oh, Kanab, Utah. I don't know if you've ever been there. It's the I Hulk. have been to Kanab. I love that town. Isn't that a great town? I mean, it's so beautiful. And, it, you know, so many Westerns and, and legendary movies were filmed there. Gunsmoke, um, Johnson Canyon. Some of the sets, I think, are still standing up there. Yeah, and they have, and we shot some of the pilot for Daniel Boone there. So I love going back. They have the Western Legend Roundup in August. That's August 24th through the 26th, uh, which is just a great little festival. And then I'm off to shoot a movie. Um in kansas after that but the one i just did was called which was done in your neck of the woods was called once was once a hero the names changed a couple of times um and that's a fun one you know there's another great little one that's on the internet there um called uh, wild faith there's a few fun things so we'll see what what all this brings about Keep an eye out for Darby Hinton. Visit him online at darbyhinton.com. You've come a long way since Israel Boone. Thanks for spending time with us. I want to make a deal with you. Yes, sir. If you send me your book, Becoming Semi-Famous, I'll send you my book, Growing Up Israel. It's a deal. Consider it done. And thanks for being here. And and be sure to pick up uh, the book from Darby. You can find it, I'm sure, at the website, Amazon, or wherever great books are sold. <laughs> Darby Hinton, thanks for hanging out with us today. Thank you. You are the director of fun because it was fun. Yes, sir. And thank you for that. This is the Big Time Talker podcast. Thank you so much for making us a part of your day. Thanks for listening. Thank you to Darby Hinton and our show sponsor, SpeakerMatch.com. Wherever you go, whatever you do, make it a great day. Bye, everybody. <laughs>